Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the people behind the positions in our public conversations, and how we might better navigate our deepest divides. Every episode, I interview a complex human being who happens to have some kind of public voice. From rappers to writers, archbishops to artists, politicians to playwrights, and as it turns out, a really large number of journalists, because like CJ Craig in The West Wing, I just love them. I then try and listen as they reflect on what has shaped them and what their deepest values are. And in this podcast, the team and I are trying to create a space which is a bit less defined by winning the argument or promoting a project, but is really seeking to understand, seeking to develop empathy by listening deeply to people who may believe, behave, belong, vote, express themselves, perform in very different ways from ourselves. I just wanted to say a huge thank you for so many encouragements that I've been receiving over recent months. There have been a few really lovely reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for those. Really appreciate you taking the time to do that. And various of you have been also getting in touch via email and social media to say you value what we're doing. And it just really means a lot. One thing I'd love is for you to tell me stories of how this podcast has maybe helped you have deeper conversations yourselves. Maybe send an episode to a friend and say, could we talk about this afterwards? Or perhaps ask people what they hold sacred next time they come for dinner. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Tim Stanley. Tim is a historian, journalist and broadcaster specialising in US history, politics and religion, a leader, writer and columnist for the Daily Telegraph and contributing editor at the Catholic Herald. We spoke about his Baptist, socialist and spiritualist childhood, his conversion from Marxist atheism to Catholicism at Cambridge, his vision for what conservatism offers society, and what he sees his role is in public as a journalist. As always, the person that I had in my head while researching was quite different from the person who I actually spoke to. Tim's honesty about how most people are reacting out of scarcity and a desire to win will really stay with me as well as his impassioned plea for people not to assume that conservatives and Catholics are intolerant or hateful. I really hope you enjoy listening. Tim, sacred values, quite a chunky concept with which to start with. There's no sort of small talky warming up. And you've had a little bit of warning. But when I mean, when I ask people what they hold sacred or what their sacred values are, I'm not necessarily anticipating that they will immediately know or have a very pat answer about it. It's a way of trying to get us to the deeper things underneath the issues. And I try and frame it usually as deep values or principles that you have hoped to live by or have attempted to live by. And one of the ways, one of the clues we get about what we hold sacred is we get that ick feeling when someone tries to transgress them. Maybe if someone offered you money to give this thing up, you'd feel very compromised. What came to mind to you for something you might hold sacred? Is that ick feeling, is that sacred or taboo? Oh, interesting. (laughs) I've been thinking about this question because you sent me an email about it, and I have both a very specific technical answer and a really general cuddly answer. Give me both. The specific answer is that sacred, speaking as a Catholic, means anything which is related to God. So that's the party line, if you like. 
And I've noticed when people are asked what's sacred to you, they very often say things which at face value are not related to God. So they will say things like, my time is sacred. My memory of my grandmother is sacred. I'm not diminishing these things. They are sacred to that person. But technically, no, that's not a sacred thing. So I wanted to give a really specific answer and say, uh, in my faith, it is anything related to God. But then the thing is that that is such a huge concept, and God really has no limits. Therefore, in theory, one could leap from a very specific, narrow set of things to just saying everything is related to God. Because if you take the sacraments of the Catholic faith as the bridge, the sacraments are really specific. There are things like baptizing a baby. So that's a, that's a sacred thing to do. But when that baby is baptized, there's a sort of transubstantiation, we would say, takes place. The person themselves are transformed physically, not just spiritually. They become part, part of the body of the church. And what is the church? The church is the body of God. So in other words, when you are baptized, you become part of God, really. So the answer is, on the one hand, it's this very specific list of things are sacred to me and my faith. But because they transform so much, you could almost say that to me, everything is sacred because everything is touched by God. The world is created by God. We are created in the image of God. Therefore, everything is sacred. Thank you. Lots to chew on there. I'm sure we'll come back to it. But first, I want to wind back to get a sense of you, your story, your formative influences. If you're willing, I'd love you to tell me a bit about your childhood, particularly any big, big ideas, religious ideas, political ideas, philosophical ideas that you think have formed you. I, I, I was very lucky because I, I grew up in quite an ordinary, we would call lower middle class household. My father was an engineer. My mother was a gardener. So it was quite an ordinary upbringing, but my parents were quite unusual people. My father was quite political and of the left, and he was a great reader. And I, I have inherited, for instance, his love of science fiction and his love of ideas. My mother came, my, my father was, came from a very poor, very uh, underprivileged background because he was the son of a single mother in the 1950s uh, in working class South London, which is a really very difficult place to grow up. My mother was, on the other hand, came from a bohemian family a sort of upper middle class family um, who uh, were very religious. So while my father was political, my father's side was political, my mother's side was intensely religious. And they were, uh, uh, you could tell, you could actually tell the history of religion in Britain through my mother's family because they were committed nonconformists. There were Methodists in there. Um, there were Baptists. And my mother's mother was a sort of Christian spiritualist. So I grew up in a household in which seances were treated as um, not quite normal because they're not normal, but they, they were treated as a fact of life. Wow. A lot of things that people nowadays assume are on the fringe or are things people did in the old days or are really weird and mystical to me were bread and butter growing up. Um, so, so I had, so I, I was, I grew up in a household which was full of ideas, and in which God and politics were taken very seriously. 
So when I when I was growing up, I sort of rejected the religion initially. My my parents, for some reason, I don't know why, but when I, I I can't remember what age I was, but they decided they wanted me to join a church, and so they joined the Baptists because, as I say, they were constitutional nonconformists. So I, I there was an attempt to raise me as a Baptist, but I rejected that. And uh, until really my mid twenties, uh, I was a Marxist, a, a really really left wing socialist. Did that come from your dad? Was that the, the, the thread that he was following? No, and, I, and, I, and it was a rebellion against him as well, I, I, I think. I'm, I'm not quite sure how I got there. I got there through the study of history. I know that much. For me, politics and political ideas have always been historical. It's always been my fascination with people in the past, with, with ideas that motivated them. Um, and, I, and I was fascinated by that great revolutionary period of the early 20th century. And I, I think that's, I, as a teenager, I was convinced there would be, and, and I was convinced of this in the way that Christians are of the second coming, I was convinced there would be a revolution and I would be in charge of it. Which is, the, <laughs> which is as Roger Scruton says, left-wing intellectuals are often left-wing intellectuals because they assume they'll be the people running things when the revolution comes. And I was very much one of those people. And then I, at university, I softened, uh, became a bit more conservative, but I also became a Catholic. So I rediscovered religion in my 20s. Uh, but growing up, um, as I say, I was surrounded by politics, literature, and religion. And I was very lucky in that regard. And uh, I have my parents to thank for that. Tell me a little bit more about that conversion moment for from Catholicism, a kind of Baptist spiritual legacy on your childhood, atheist Marxism. It's not the natural trajectory. What interrupted your life and sent it in a different direction? Well, well first of all, I have to say, I think it is a natural trajectory. Uh, I, I happen to be writing a book right now, a good opportunity to plug it, um, called Whatever Happened to Tradition, in which I, I talk about, um, there's, there's a moment in the 19th century where a lot of these ideas become confused and they meet each other. And you'll find Christian socialists like John Ruskin, who uh, what some people would say was a high Tory, he called himself a communist. And there, there, there actually is a great deal of overlap. And there's, again, in the 19th century, you begin to see the evolution of um, spiritual, the spiritual religious uh, uh, expression into political expression. So I, I think actually there's, there's a big crossover. I, I think that the pat psychological answer is I was always looking for a cause. I was always looking for something to believe in, something bigger than myself that I could subsume myself into, that I could lend my talents to, I could surrender my ego, and I could be part of a cause. Um, and, and so actually there's, there's a lot of crossover between Catholicism and communism historically. There's a great deal of it. Um, and, and very often Catholic societies have produced great socialists as well. So I, I'd say it's, it's a mixture of those things. But in terms of the personal journey, I arrived at university an atheist. And as I said, I was very interested in history and the history of ideas. And I started studying the early modern period, the period of the English Civil War. And I was fascinated by the way in which people were moved by faith. That really surprised me because I thought people were moved by either economic conditions, material conditions, um, or by ideological ideas. I didn't really think of God as a transformative thing. I don't know why. And then to read about people making that connection between belief in God and changing society, that I think is what motivated me to look again. But but having said all of that, uh, also it's just to do with the Holy Spirit. That something something external to me persuaded me to look again and to think again. And I think you you have to see God in that. And did you find a community of people who you were in conversation with, who you were invited into? Um... 
No, I did it very much alone. And I partly did it alone on purpose because I didn't want people to think it was peer pressure. To go to, to go, I went to Cambridge University, to go to Cambridge and to come out to Catholic, I, I was worried people would think I had just read Brideshead Revisited. And I was just a fanboy of Evelyn War. And, and so, and I did have some Catholic friends who people, who were very strong personalities and who people might have thought had influenced or persuaded me to do something. So I actually purposefully researched it and prayed about it and studied it on my own because I wanted this to be my decision. And it was a very big one, which lost me a lot of friends. Um, so it, it did change my life. Yeah, I think I'd love to hear more about that experience, really. I feel... M- more so now, but perhaps always these big metanoia moments, these big conversion moments, whether they're political or religious or philosophical, are weighted not just intellectually, but very interpersonally. What was it like really transitioning away from a tribe or joining a new tribe or that moment where your belonging and identity are so in flux? How did you experience that? The only way to do it was to separate yourself from people. I found. So, for example, uh, I went through a period in which every Sunday morning I'd get up insanely early, get on my bicycle and cycle to village churches all around the area and try different churches, which sounds really odd. But the point is I was doing it by myself. I felt I had to take myself out of an intellectual circle. And I was definitely in one, which was the circle of the Cambridge left. And they're very good people who I liked enormously, but I had to unplug myself from them. And then I had to try something different. And then when I tried to go back, uh, I found a great deal of hostility to what I was doing. Um, And and, and that's for a number of reasons, of which probably the most central one is the perception that Catholicism is all about abortion and hating gay people. So there was just this this conviction that, uh, I mean, for instance, when I told my grandmother that I was uh, converting to Catholicism, she said, but you're a member of the Labour Party. Which is a really strange and silly reaction because the Labour Party is full of Catholics. And of course, uh, working class, particularly Irish Catholics, are the backbone of the Labour Party. But still, there was a perception that why, in the 21st century, why was someone who was left wing become a Catholic? Because they're so, supposedly so reactionary on social policy. So I, th- I, th- I think that's the answer. I, I had to actually detach myself from my group. But I want to also add that conversion did not happen overnight. There, there were no, there, there was one overnight moment when I, I was uh, sort of semi, I was half cut, semi drunk, standing in a nightclub, and I just thought, I'm hating what I'm doing right now. I hate what my life is right now. I need to just convert. But I wouldn't call that a conversion moment. Uh, that was just the conversion catching up with me. The conversion actually took probably a good year or more. I was very slow. I tried lots of different churches. Um, and it, it does not, it, to me, it was not Damascene at all. Mm. It's funny. There's a real echo in what you said. I had an interview with Ruth Hunt um, last year about her re- reconnection with the church. And it also happened on a dance floor and a sense of the way, <laughs> the, way <laughs> the place that my life is in is not where I want it to be. I wonder if there's something about music and alcohol and sweat, which lowers our, uh, lowers our guard against these things. Um, I, I want to pick up on what you said, because I, I, I think you're exactly right that there is, there is often an overlap between Marxism and Catholicism. And of course, in the 70s, huge numbers of the kind of literary critics and post-structural critics came to the end of Marxism on its own and converted to Catholicism. And you still see that legacy with Terry Eagleton and others. But you've spoken a bit about how your conversion to Catholicism 
was connected somehow to a growing conservatism. So I'd love to, or perhaps not conservatism, I know, unpack that for me and feel free to use your own language because I don't want to impose these labels on you. I still can't quite work out what was going on. So I don't want to, (laughs) whenever you're reminiscing, there's always a risk that you carve a narrative. Yeah, I was this, I became that. And here's the You confabulate it. And, and, and the, the reality is, is I, even if I had not become religious or become a Catholic, I probably would have moved to the right anyway. And likewise, it's, it's entirely possible I could have become a Catholic and remain within the Labour Party because lots of people have. I could easily have remained on the left. It, it, it's perfectly possible to do that. But I, what I, I, I think becoming a Catholic, uh, partly on the social issues, um, uh, things like abortion in the family, you do have to think again. But also there is, a, there is a subtle shift in your sense of the locus of responsibility. For the left, uh, social change is achieved through collective action. And historically, they're right. I don't disagree with that. But in your day-to-day life, the person who really changes things is you. And I, I think becoming religious, not just Catholic, but any kind of religion, Uh, Because you develop a personal relationship with God, because suddenly you're conscious of your personal responsibilities, your sense of who makes change adapts. And to, to, to boil it down, today I am very conscious of a lot of left wing people who seem to wait for society or the state to change things. Whereas it seems to me that conservatives tend to get on and change things by themselves. And I have more in sympathy with that worldview now that um, what it matters less what um, a party can do. It matters less what the state can do. The state tends actually to cock things up whenever it gets involved. It matters more what am I doing. Now, and just, and just to emphasize, you can have both. And there are socialists who do personal responsibility. I'm not saying they're in conflict. But I think that's one of the reasons why I gradually became more conservative, because I just grew sick and tired of hearing about the change coming that would come eventually through this program or this revolution or this action. And I became more interested in the change that I'm expected to make through behavior, through my behavior reflecting my beliefs. I would love you to, um, yeah, sketch out a bit more of that worldview. I had a fascinating conversation with Ed West about his conservatism and his book, Small Men on the Wrong Side of History. And one of the things that he wrestles with in that book is actually a lot of people don't know necessarily what conservatism is. And that's the same for many kind of political philosophies. But I think particularly in the UK, where the more libertarian leaning edge of the right and the more Burkean, slightly more communitarian area of the right um, connect and how they intersect is just very very misunderstood. And you call yourself conservative. You've also, you also use the word traditionalist. I know tra- tradition is a big thing for you. So maybe you could just say, this is, you know, this is my vision for what a good society is. This is where my, what my political philosophy leads me to. First of all, I don't think that until about two or three years ago, before I started researching this book, I don't think I knew what conservatism was. And that's partly because of the impact of Margaret Thatcher, that she, she has really transformed our understandings of what conservatism is. And, and actually, in an ironic mirroring of Marxism, she made conservatism materialist. Prior to Maggie Thatcher, it was not materialist. In fact, if anything, it was the antithesis of that. Um, she introduced ideology. She introduced the idea that it's about getting rich. And that for us to get rich, the state must retreat. So uh, that's part of the problem. In the course of researching this, I realized that there is not just a British conservative tradition to which I feel actually very comfortable, which is the Burkean 
tradition, uh, which is which is about tradition. And the idea that for the individual to flourish, they have to be rooted in a community. It's actually the very antithesis of Thatcherism in many ways. But not only a British conservatism, I also discovered slowly a French and Russian conservatism as well. That actually, if you look at what's being written by uh, Joseph de Maistre, if you look at what's being written by Dostoevsky, these people are all talking to the same about the same thing, which is a, a spiritual reaction to modernity. How do we respond to this tide of economic, technological, and social change, which is dizzying and which has only increased with the advent of the internet? And their answer is to look back and to root yourself in the past. That, to me, is what conservatism is. It, it, it's, it's sort of what William F. Buckley says when he says it's about standing athwart history, shouting stop. It's sort of about that. That that's a, a class, conservatives are great jokers. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of humour in conservatism, partly because it's the humour of people who know they've already lost the argument and they've already lost the battle. Um, but it is partly just about saying. Uh, what do we want to hold on to? Not just what changed is necessary, but what also do we want to keep? Um, and and that, that to me is what conservatism is. And strangely, the conservative and Republican parties, the two in the West, the two most uh, prominent parties that represent conservative thought, they, they've really divorced themselves from that tradition. It's interesting. I've been reading a little bit about a book about... Um... I think it's called The Myth of Innovation or, or something similar. In It's really helping me connect the dots with the way both the left and the right have got obsessed with innovation and future and, yes. um, and moving us forward because of this cult of newness. Yes. But that less glamorous, but perhaps more ne necessary work of maintaining and conserving, particularly yes. now. And it, uh, I'm always astonished by how much the discourse around the climate feels so captured by the left and my friends on the right feel so alienated by it, given that it's essentially an argument about maintaining, respecting, preserving what we have. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and it's actually only when reading 19th century writers like Ruskin and William Morris that I found a, a, a take on the environment I can sympathize with because it's a fundamentally spiritual one. Um, and, and which the... I, I, I sympathise with the left's programme. Uh, I don't sympathise with the ends to which it is being put. Uh, they want to seek, they seek the transformation of society. I don't. I seek the preservation of the best bits of society. But I, I think part of the reason why the, the right has become obsessed with change is the Reformation. It, it's wired into the DNA of, um, it's a clumsy term, but Anglo-Saxon politics. It's, it's, it's where that classical liberal tradition comes from. And as Roger Scruton says, I think accurately, conservatism emerges as a debate within liberal Protestantism, within liberal Protestant societies. And therefore, contemporary conservatism in Britain and America is really a shade of liberalism and a product of Protestantism. It dates its roots back to the sort of constitutional arguments around 1688. And if you read, um, if you read a lot of Scruton, which I've done, he's fantastic. But I'm conscious as a Catholic and a lot of readers wouldn't notice this, but I'm conscious as a Catholic how little he quotes of Catholicism. And there's a sort of weird gap in a lot of the conservative, in a lot of conservative philosophy. There's a very odd gap between Marcus Aurelius and Luther. And it's like, it's like nothing happened in between. And also yeah. nothing happens outside Britain and America that's worth talking about. There's yeah. so little Tolstoy. There's so little Dostoevsky. It's really weird. So British conservatism, even those elements within it which are traditionalist, uh, feels weirdly cut off from its own past. And I think that's a consequence of the Reformation.
I think that's because we are, Britain and America are the products of ruptures. Yeah. And what we're trying to preserve is the consequence of a rupture. And that's very, very difficult to do. That, that's a contradiction we've never got our head around. And, and it's the same with the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is a rupture from Catholic culture. And yet conservatives today talk constantly, like Jordan Peterson, who's been put into the conservative camp, talk constantly about the preservation of Enlightenment ideals. Well, I have to say I don't agree with a lot of those ideals because I'm a proper conservative. <laughs> so I don't, I don't like a lot of what happened in the 18th century. But that's where conservatism's got to. It's the preservation of a revolution. And I don't think that, I think that's a contradiction too far. It's almost a contradiction in terms, isn't it? Yes. I've been reading some of your columns and, and, and trying to get a, a, a sense of you. And one of the things I'd love to talk to you about is this moment that we're in in culture where it feels like, and I can never quite get a handle on if we are actively massively more polarized than we are. I get this. I think the data shows that the sort of elites are, but at the, at the general population level, it's, it, it's really not as, um, deep as that and we're not and our divides are very much not as deep as the states and we tend to import um those narratives over the pond but there's definitely a sense in which basically since the run-up to the brexit referendum if not before our ability to have actually productive conversations across some of these political differences is just getting um we're getting less and less good at it Mm. and i'd love you to reflect on what your role is as a columnist because i I do hear from you, and actually I found it quite refreshing for you to be so so, so open about it and so straightforward. I'm going to quote a line you said, who controls institutions and what they do with them is what the culture war is about. The culture war is about power. And unless you're willing to fight and use every trick in the book to win, you'll get rolled over. Mm. And I was like, I feel like that's where most people actually sit, but very few people say it as clearly mm-hmm. as that. They're not honest. People are not honest about that. And, and, and both left and right do it. And left and right uh, use this phrase free speech to talk about what they want. And very often when you dig down into it, it's not what they want at all. They usually want to shut up the other side and speak instead. And both left and right do it. So when I say that about institutions, part of the problem as a columnist is you're always interpreted that's the nature of, of writing. And that's interpreted as me saying, we on the right have got to beat up these left these lefties and take over and impose our wealthy. No, what I, I'm as far as I'm concerned, and I've always regarded this as the job of my job as a columnist, I'm trying to explain what's going on. And uh, what I'm saying is I think that's what this culture war is. I think it's a struggle for control of institutions. I'm not saying that I want my side to take over. In, in a sense, that was tried under Trump. And, and actually, it became institutional vandalism. It wasn't an intelligent occupation and, and a sympathetic and sophisticated use of the institutions in order to promote conservatism. It was just deconstruction. And if you, if you look at the regulatory agenda, for instance, it was just get rid of regulations. It wasn't, as I say, use them to create the kind of society you want to create. So, uh, that, so the, the, uh, my answer to your, your sort of broad question about what, is, what do I see my role as because I'm trained in history, I've always seen it as my role to explain to people what people think and why. That includes myself. Now, I have a conservative bias. I'm open about that. But I will honestly try to explain what both sides think about something. But my conclusions are generally quite pessimistic because in the 10 years that I've been doing this, I have become more jaded about human motivation. 
And I think people lie about what their real intent is. And in, and in most cases, the intent is to win. And I don't blame them for that. I want to win too. Uh, I just think that we have to be honest that that's the real nature of this game. It's to win. Where's that coming from? Do you have a, indulge me with some sort of pop psychology? It It may just be I mean, you and I would probably share a kind of theological instinct about sin and, you know, yeah. that, that's what human beings are like. But, and that's part, possibly part of the explanation, but there feels like there is more fear, maybe more urgency, more of a sense that there isn't a such thing as everyone having part of the pie, that mm-hmm. it has become more zero-sum-ish in our conception of what democracy might look like, rather than a kind of healthy, conflictual, but dynamic and broadly fair pluralism. Yes. I, I, first of all, I don't think the situation is quite that bad. Uh, actually, I'm struck by the broad consensus in thought. As, as, a, as a loony medievalist, uh, high Tory socialist Catholic, I am far more conscious of the consensus than most people would be. Because if you look at our politics, no one in this country, almost no one in this country, wants to say reverse gay marriage, wants to ban abortion, uh, wants to nationalise the commanding heights of the economy, uh, wants even to ban the bomb. I mean, very, or wants to uh, reverse immigration and pay people to go back home. These are debates of the past. I don't, I'm not just saying I'm signing up to any of those, by the way, I'm just listing them as examples. These are debates of the past when there was genuine ideological conflict, but there isn't today. The striking thing, actually, is how narrow the battles are and that they're very often internecine. So the classic example is the trans debate, which I feel entirely outside of and I look, in, I look at as an outsider and I just find perplexing. Um, and I have sympathy for both positions and the human beings on both sides as well. But that's a debate within the left. The right has got almost nothing to do with that debate. It's feminists versus transsexuals. And they both basically agree that um, gender is malleable. Now, as I say, you go back 50 years ago, there was real disagreement over that uh, because there was a, a, a conservative consensus that gender was not malleable and it was the same as sex and the two were inseparable. Well, actually, as a society, there is now an overwhelming consensus that sex and gender are different and that uh, sex is the pole around which gender dances. Everyone's signed up to that now, including myself. So I, I'm actually, I actually think there's far greater consensus. But in terms of where does it come from, why are we having this fight? I think, yes, it's, you can call it original sin. You can call it human nature. You can also call it economics. Coming from having worked in universities, which is a, a really brutal, unpleasant place, uh, I know how nasty academic politics can be because you're fighting over limited resources. You're fighting very often over one job, like 12 people who want one job. And that's what much of this competition is about. It's the competition to win control of the job and the money. A few years ago, I spoke to Paul Gottfried, a controversial conservative writer um, who was around in the 60s, the era of Marcuse. And, um, and he's, always, he's written a great deal about uh, how he felt drummed out of academia in the 60s. He, he felt that his promotions were stopped because he was vaguely right-wing. And I asked him a few years ago, so looking back on it, what do you think motivated that, which is really the question you've asked me? And he said, I always thought it was ideological, but looking back on it, I think they just wanted my job. And I think that's what a lot of this is. I, I think it's as simple as that. People would just like to control the institutions for the sake of controlling the institutions. I mean, isn't the goal to be in number 10? 
there's very there's, there's not much philosophical difference between Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson. They just want to be in number 10. And you'll use anything. You'll pick up any stick and use any weapon to use against your opponent. So I think a lot of it is actually materialist. It's just, I want to win. I want to control this thing because I'd like the money in the car. It's a scarcity mindset. Yeah, I think so, yes. Which is partly the product of um, late capitalism, as the left say, and living in a, in a, a liberal society society which doesn't feel innovative or growing in the way that China feels it's like it's innovative and growing. Uh, America and Britain feel very much like we're living off the remains uh, of our past. And, and therefore, we, we have arguments in, this, in Britain about the BBC. I mean, and if you step back from it, that's really weird. The only reason why we do is because it's state controlled. If it wasn't, we would never talk about who's running the BBC. We only talk about it because it's state controlled and because I'd like to be on it more. I feel, I feel my friends should run the BBC so that I'll be commissioned to make documentaries about 19th century conservatism. That's all I want. And I think that's what a lot of it's about. And, and whole books have been written by people who are just pissed off that they weren't given a job by the BBC. But it, this is because it's state control. If it wasn't state control, we wouldn't <laughs> be having I'm just really... It's just so... It's very... It's sort of hilariously accurate and apt, and I'm really enjoying it. It's the same. It's the same with the NHS. We have huge arguments about control of the NHS, and the NHS has become this weird god. Very few countries feel that way about a health system. It's right to feel that way about doctors and nurses who take risks and do great things, and because they're actually doing the health stuff. But to be in love with a system, to be in love effectively with a payroll—that's just weird. But likewise, to hate it is a bit weird and is a product of it being state-owned. If it wasn't state-owned, if it wasn't this competition over resources, we wouldn't be debating it nearly as much as we do. Hmm. I want you to unpack for me a bit about this sense. The line you used earlier was because we know we've already lost the argument. And lots of people with a more conservative or traditionalist view on the world that I speak to say similar things um, to me. And I definitely feel that sense of a kind of default progressive set of values in key major institutions. And I've read various explanations for why that's happened. And a lot of them are actually materialist and economic, Mm -hmm. again, in this sense that once you reach a certain level of affluence, those um, you know, hierarchy of needs needs at the top, like self-expression and individual autonomy begin to come through and those tend to drive a more progressive change. I think one of the threads in our very toxic public debates at the moment is the sense of some of the, what are certainly perceived to be more extreme ends of a progressive worldview that are particularly focused on issues of identity at the moment and a kind of liberatory um, understanding of identity and the role it can play are, as you said, just really not connecting, I think, with the, the consensus base of where most people are. So what what is your summary of why we've got to where we are with that? And do you have a prediction about where it might go? Do you think things will, uh, the pendulum will swing in the other direction? I think, first of all, this is a, a characteristic of uh, Enlightenment Western societies. I don't think it's new. And if you, were, if you were looking at the 19th century, you'd find a lot of these complaints about society again. Um, so we have to bear that in mind because there's a tendency among conservatives to be catastrophists and also to be people who give in 
and, and who give up. When the reality is, is that society ebbs and flows, culture ebbs and flows. And a lot of what conservatives think was the past and what the past used to be like were actually brief moments, were situations and contexts that themselves might have been, uh, that themselves might follow a period of liberalization. So the classic example is that uh, 20, in the 20s and 30s, there's a great deal of concern about family breakup and about um, young people behaving badly, about men becoming effeminate, about women becoming too masculine, all these classic conservative gripes. And then you get the 50s, you get a reaction against it, which is partly the product of economic circumstance and the war and a big baby boom. Um, so, so I think things ebb and, ebb and flow, and it's the nature of conservatives to be pessimists about that. And that's partly because they have, they have uh, at their heart, whether they realize it or not, they believe in original sin. Um, that shot through, whether it's a Catholic take or a Calvinist take, uh, which is a little more depressing, um, they, they sort of think it's the nature of mankind to tear beautiful things down. So I, I, I think you've got to bear that in mind. So where will it go? Because of that, the answer is, I don't know. I, I think it can either lead to um, stagnance and, and decadence, which is obviously the Ross Douthat view, that society is just sort of reaching the end of itself, that we're like one of those uh, pedigree dogs that's just become preposterous and can no longer breed, no longer feed itself. We're just sort of dragging ourselves across the floor, looking very beautiful, but quite impossible and pointless. Um, that's one Typically, conservative. Every time I see a Kardashian now, that's what I'm going to think. <laughs> that's one view, but the alternative is actually, if you look at the track record, we could do the complete opposite, and we could rediscover the family, we could rediscover church, and become a very different society. It's within our our grasp to change, and it's not good enough for conservatives to write Jeremiah's. They have to start writing Utopias, and the problem is, is that economically, there's a lot of money in dystopias. There's a lot of money in Fox, uh, in Fox saying of Joe Biden, he's a communist. And it's just utter rubbish, he's not. But also, what's your alternative? What's your alternative? So conservatives, if they have, uh, this, this is something where the left are good, because they're good at programs and ideas. And that's one of the reasons why they dominate culture, is because they're trying constantly to innovate and come up with new things. Conservatives have got to become like that. And they were like that in the past. Uh, so they can do it again. That's really helpful because I think, well, one, one thing I would reflect back is whenever I have conversations across these divides, almost all parties feel like they're losing. Yes. It's very interesting to me. I had a conversation with a humanist academic and really felt like secular humanists feel the weight of religious privilege much more strongly than religious people themselves who often <laughs> indeed feel the weight of what they perceive as secular privilege and feel quite marginalised. And in the same way, I think when I talk to friends on the left, they see what they perceive as the rise of the alt-right and populism and Trump and, you know, the current UK government and think, gosh, the left is losing. We're always losing. Why are we always losing? Mm. But conservatives say the same thing to me. Help me understand what's going on. Do you know? I, I, I remember once, and this was one of those many moments in the long road from the left to the right, where I, I found myself sitting at a Labour Party campaign stuffing envelopes with a teacher, which is a very nice person um, who I liked enormously, but she, she brought up misbehaviour in the class. And she said, it's just terrible. You can't get children to behave. Uh, the parents don't seem to care about uh, the way they behave. And it's just becoming impossible to do my job. 
which is a classic uh, thing that right-wingers say, as well as left-wingers. So I said to her, I agree, because I've done a bit of teaching myself. Uh, and I said, why do you think this is? And she said, Thatcher. <laughs> That's not remarkable. But she said, Margaret Thatcher. I said, please tell me why. And she said, because Margaret Thatcher told people that they're individuals, that society doesn't matter. So they don't care about the community anymore. They don't care about public spaces or social goods or public or, or, or state schools. They're just in it for themselves. She destroyed this country. And the funny thing is, is you could have that conversation with a right winger who would make the same gripe about the behavior of students. And you, and you would say to them, what caused this? And they would probably say, they might well say socialism. Because it taught kids that they had rights, that they could talk back to us. It taught parents that they were the victims of poverty and it wasn't their responsibility to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And I said this to the teacher and I, I, I said, there is an alternative view, which is that actually it's the left that's done this. It's our responsibility, um, which she just found preposterous. But in that moment, I just thought, isn't it fascinating that uh, we basically have the same complaints about society? But it's not just that we have different solutions is that we, we blame different things. But both left and right will say, um, will say this country used to be better and it's got worse. And the left, their ideal society is, sometimes they will say the 1940s, which is the sort of near-revolutionary period in Britain when you're building the welfare state. Some of them will say the 1970s when there were strong unions and there was working-class pride and things like that. And the right will say it's the 1950s. But both think we're in decline. And again, I think I come back partly to that idea of original sin and the fall. This sense uh, that actually societies get worse, even as they materially get better, that something gets lost. And both left and right think that. And part of the problem with our elites is they don't think that way. And they don't understand that. Elites, uh, our elites tend to be futurists. They're always looking to the future and they have very little connection or sympathy for the past. They don't realize how in cultural terms, conservative, both left and right actually are, how nostalgic we are. Nostalgic very often for a past we didn't live in. How yeah. many conservatives will say it was better in the 1950s and they were born in 1990? How would they know? How many socialists would say it was more exciting than to be alive in the 1970s and they were born in 2000? It's bizarre. So that, that's an, I think it's a part of human nature to miss something, not only that you've lost, but something you never had. Yeah. Tim, I'm going to finish with a final question about what would you like, and I, I'm, going to, I, I'm going to ask you to do it about conservatism, but feel free to answer about Catholicism as well. People who don't share that worldview, that set of values, are there any repeated misunderstandings or just sense of barriers or annoyances that you there will, be, there will be people listening who are progressive, who perhaps don't know many people who are politically conservative, who have all kinds of preconceptions about what conservatism is. What might help them grow in empathy and understanding of who you are and where you come from? First of all, please don't assume we're intolerant. The contrary is true. In my experience of being among both conservatives and Catholics, they may have fixed philosophical views of what's right or wrong but I have genuinely found them to be the most compassionate and tolerant of people as, as individual human beings. And that, that's a real misunderstanding the left has. Uh, there is usually no hate there. It, there. There's a take people as they find them kind of attitude. And that's particularly the case with Catholicism, because at the heart of Catholicism is the idea of mercy, that there is a strong belief in sin, in right and wrong, but it's a mechanism for the forgiving of that sin. 
And of course, the left just doesn't want to believe that certain things are right or wrong, although they have many things they do think are right and wrong. We disagree over what is right and wrong. But you've got to understand the motivating force is this idea that we're all broken and that we come together uh, not just to get fixed through the sacraments, but to fix each other as well. So we're really very tolerant people by and large. Um, and the other thing to understand is that uh, conservatives and Catholics have a tremendous sense of humor. And it's partly because the left dominates cultural production. They don't realize this, but actually they're just wickedly funny people and they have the most marvelous time. And their, their humor can be a little cutting and biting and satirical, uh, but it's there. And I've never laughed as much as I have done uh, since moving to the right and becoming a Catholic. Tim Stanley, thank you so much for speaking to me for The Sacred. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. Remember, sharing is caring, as my four-year-old says, so please do send this or another episode to a friend, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or my personal favourite, leave us a review. I really get a thrill when I see a new one pop up. Huge thanks to Abby Allison for research and production support and Emily Down for our visual identity. We are edited by Drew Hawley and our music is composed and arranged by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. The Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.